unfortunately the recordings on Sunday didn't work properly so instead of a live recording you've got this so think of this as a studio recording of um, of Sunday sermon on Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11 I wonder if you've ever had a day that's run something a bit like this you get up in the morning and it's cold and drizzly and your radiators haven't come on and after your cold shower you manage to cut yourself while shaving as you head downstairs you stub your toe on a nail sticking out of the wall which you should have fixed years ago but you never got round to it as you head into the kitchen you rummage through the cupboards and you discover you've got nothing substantial to eat you mention this to your wife which starts a row and so your quiet time that morning gets shelved you go out to the car you put the key in the ignition but it won't start which means you wipe at work late and in the awareness you haven't quite finished that report your boss wanted so the whole day unfolds in one endless stream of mini irritants you have an opportunity to share your faith with a non-christian colleague but you're such a bad mood that when he asks a rather silly question you answer with the sort of bluntness and condescending wit that leaves the poor man shriveled up in a pile of embarrassment you feel bad that you've said it now eventually you return home to discover your wife has cooked for you but it's that disgusting meal your children love you can't be civil to her and she can't be civil to you and the kids are more irritating than ever that evening. You want to watch TV, but your wife wants you to fix that nail sticking out the wall. Finally, it's time to for bed at the end of a long day, and your prayer runs something like this. God, this has been a terrible day. I'm ashamed of how I've behaved. I really don't have anything to say. I'm sorry I didn't do better. Forgive me. Amen. And that night you go to sleep feeling guilty a few days later you wake up to the sun that is shining through your curtains the sky is blue the birds are singing you're whistling as you shave in the bathroom as you enter the kitchen there is the smell of bacon in the air which your wife has lovingly prepared for you and over a hearty breakfast you have an edifying quiet time then you go out to your car which starts right away you get to work early and that day everyone seems to commend your industriousness and intelligence your boss pulls you aside that day to tell you you did a great job on that report and he's putting your name forward for a promotion. Now you come across that same non-Christian colleague and wonder of wonders, the poor bloke actually asks another question about your faith. But this time you respond with wisdom, gentleness, understanding and insight. And lo and behold, he promises to come to church with you that coming Sunday. Then you arrive home and there's a joyous family dinner. The kids are behaving and once they're down to bed, you enjoy an intimate evening with your wife. So finally, at the end of that day, you get down to pray and your prayer sounds something like this. Eternal and matchless God, we bow in your glorious presence with brokenness and gratitude. We bless you that in your infinite mercies and great grace you have poured favour upon us. We're not worthy of the least of your mercies and on and on you go in flowery theological language. You thank God for all the things of your day and you pray for the mission partners and their children and their first cousins twice removed. Then he starts to pray for everyone you can think of in the church. An hour goes by and you go to bread and you instantly fall asleep. And in your mind, you are righteous before God. Walking in today, I'm sure most of you would have said you're trusting in Jesus, depending on the cross alone and not at all in your moral performance. Or at least that's what I hope you'd say. But the issue in our passage today is not just who you're trusting in for your salvation, it's what controls us emotionally. What decides whether you're joyful or not? What decides whether you're on a high or a low? I'm aware this is a difficult 
subject for those of us who suffer mental health issues. But for the majority of us here, we're very much like those scenes I just painted. Our emotions are governed by our performance in life, with how our battles with sin are going, with our relationship status, with our job satisfaction, with our evangelism, with our quiet times. And our emotions go up and down, up and down, depending on our performance. Well, friends, it doesn't have to be that way. Just look at verse 1 of chapter 3 of Philippians, page 1180 in the Church Bibles. Verse 1, it says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. We've called this series Joy because throughout this letter, Paul keeps on telling us to rejoice. Every single passage, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And the reason he tells us here that he keeps on saying this is because he wants to safeguard the church. He wants to protect us from being emotionally governed by our performance. Too often we're like boats thrown around on the waves or whatever's just happened the week. But he wants us to be emotionally anchored in Jesus. He wants us to rejoice in the Lord. But how can we do that? And you, you might be thinking, and if, if only you knew what was going on in my life, if only you knew what was going on in my heart, you wouldn't be asking me to rejoice. But here is Paul, and he's in prison. No, he's on death row. And he's saying, rejoice in the Lord. Well, how can we do that? Well, three things from this passage for us to consider. Firstly, consider false teaching dangerous. Consider false teaching dangerous. Follow from verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Allow me to, to remind you of the situation here. Now we've come back to this letter. When, when Paul first visited Philippi, he's been preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He's been explaining how anyone can now have access to God. Even Gentiles, non-Jewish people like us, can receive forgiveness simply by believing in Jesus. But as you remember, Paul had to leave the city. And the Philippians are now starting to hear a different message. Another bunch of teachers have descended upon the church. Like Paul, they're Jewish, but they're teaching a very different gospel. They were saying that trusting in Jesus is not enough. According to these guys, if you want to be really saved and part of the real church, you need to become Jewish. You need to follow their laws. You need to get circumcised. And if you don't, well, you're left an unsaved, unclean Gentile outsider. You might remember when you're a child visiting the fairground, often outside the slightly more exciting rides, there's a sign that read something like this. You must be this tall to enter. And then whenever I'd uh, queue up with my friends and we reached the front, my heart would always sink when I saw that sign because I was rarely tall enough. I vertically challenged and many of my taller friends would swan straight past me, literally looking down on me. Well, these teachers were saying that in order to enter the kingdom, you must be this Jewish to enter. You must be this religious to enter. You must be this moral to enter. Friends, this teaching is spiritual 
cyanide and it poisons the church it would lead some of us to think uh, it would lead some of us to sink into despair because we have very little confidence in our performance and it would lead others of us to, to be puffed up with pride because we have great confidence in our performance either way none of us would be rejoicing in the lord would either be wallowing in guilt or rejoicing in ourselves so i hope paul's strong words there in verse two now make some sense these teachers claim to be pure insiders but paul says no they're unclean dogs they claim to be men of the law but paul says no they're men who do evil they claim to call themselves the circumcision group but paul rebrands them the mutilator group because they're mutilating the church and in verse three paul reminds the philippian church that despite all they're hearing it is we who are the circumcision we're the true inheritors of god's promises it's we who are the ones who worship god properly why is that well look at the very end of verse three because we put no confidence in the flesh friends if you want unshakable joy in life if you want an emotional anchor so that in any circumstance you can rejoice in the lord you need to watch out for teaching like this false teaching comes in in many forms you might not know this but still the official teaching of the roman catholic church is very similar to what paul is warning about here the catechism teaches that we're saved through a combination of what christ did on the cross and what we do in moral and religious duties so our performance is therefore split between christ's performance and our own which is why catholicism it is a sin to say you know you're going to heaven it's, it's, it's arrogance it's saying you've done enough so this their catechism calls this the sin of presumption and let me give you a quotation from the catholic encyclopedia it says this presumption may be defined as the condition of the soul that because of a badly regulated reliance on god's mercy and power hopes for salvation without doing anything to deserve it we love our catholic friends too much to let them swallow this spiritual cyanide any teaching that tells us we must deserve our salvation will either puff us up with pride or more likely crush us under a weight of guilt so if you want joy in christ consider false teaching dangerous our second point here consider self-confidence worthless now have you heard of the game pop trumps here they are here are pop trumps it's a card game if you don't know designed in the 70s to keep children distracted on, on long car journeys and uh, here's how you play you have a deck of cards often uh, themed around things like monster trucks or sports cars or things like that and on each card is a different vehicle with different statistics like top speed acceleration cost things like that and to win the game your the statistics on your card must beat the statistics on your opponent's card well imagine if you will that these false teachers in philippi like to play spiritual top trumps they think what saves them is that the stats on their cards are better than everyone else's so let's uh, play a hand shall we i'm going to play with my imaginary opponent here when during the live sermon i was actually playing with someone but i'm sitting here in a room on my own so this bit might not work so well so imagine i am playing the role of the um, false teacher in philippi and this person here is representing the gentile christian so on my card on the false teacher card it says morality rating and it says very impressively 95 but my friend here only 30 
my religious rating here, 85. Whereas my Gentile friend, only 20. Oh, Jewish pedigree. What about your Jewish pedigree? His score is only zero. Whereas my score, 97. You see, the false teachers have a great deal of confidence in themselves, don't they? Until Paul asks to join in their game. Halfway through verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. You see, if we're going to play spiritual top trumps, Paul wins every single game. He beats these false teachers at their own game. Because you couldn't get more Jewish than Paul. You couldn't get more religious than Paul. He's got these really impressive statistics. But do you know what he does with them? <laughs> he tears them up. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. You see, Paul used to be just like these false teachers, trusting in himself, looking down their long noses on others. But then he met the risen Lord Jesus. And all those things that seemed to have really mattered to him, all those things he thought were to his credit, like his morality, his religious piety, his pedigree. Well, verse 7, he now considers them a loss. Not just less in value, but a total liability. It might be worth us pausing for a moment to consider some of the things we might subconsciously put our confidence in. The things we might secretly, deep down, think put spiritual credit in our account. The things we suspect keep us afloat before God. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe, maybe it's the fact that our morality is better compared to those around us. Perhaps it's our position in the church, small group leader. Maybe it's the amount of money we give or the gifts that we have. Perhaps it's that we went to the right churches and received the right training and have impeccable Bible handling skills. Now, don't get me wrong, these are all good things, aren't they? But none of them can present us righteous before God. None of them can justify us in his sight. So if our confidence is found in those things... Well, rather than putting spiritual cash into the bank, they're putting us into greater debt. Rather than keeping us afloat, they're dragging us down. So verse 8, Paul has the audacity to say that compared to knowing Christ, he considers these things rubbish. Now I've been debating all week whether to share this with you or not, but rubbish is, is a very polite British translation. Paul's choice of word here is designed to shock us. Literally in the Greek it means human excrement. You could probably think of a four-letter word to that effect. Paul says, compared to knowing Christ, I consider these things human excrement. If you want unshakable joy in life, your self-confidence is worthless. Some days you'll perform well, other days you'll perform badly. Some days people will like you, other days people won't like you. And your mood will be tossed around like a ship in a storm. 
Johnny Wilkinson is the uh, England w- rugby hero who uh, scored the winning drop goal in the 2003 World Cup. And you might know that after that kick, he, he had something of a mental breakdown. He wrote this in his autobiography. Within hours of that last kick, I was tumbling out of control. I am only as good as my last kick. I was afflicted with a powerful fear of failure and I didn't know how to free myself from it. The better things were, the more I had to lose. There's someone whose performance governs his emotions. Well, if you want unshakable joy in life, consider self-confidence worthless. And finally, consider Christ's righteousness priceless. This is really the flip side of our previous point. Consider Christ's righteousness priceless. Follow with me again from verse 8. Paul writes, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them excrement that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. The word righteousness is taken from our law courts. When you're standing before a judge, the accused party is either declared to be unrighteous, guilty, or they're declared to be righteous, that is, innocent. But crucially, the person who gets to declare that verdict is the judge. The criminal can make himself his own little homemade certificate with glitter and fancy pens, but it'll be absolutely worthless. Well, in the same way, in verse 9, Paul doesn't want a fake righteousness of his own making, supposedly gained by observing the law. No, Paul wants a genuine declaration of righteousness from the judge, from God himself, gained by faith by what Jesus has done. And friends, this is the good news of Christianity. If you've never understood it, it's that Jesus lived the perfect, innocent life, whereas we have lived guilty lives. But on the cross, my guilty verdict was taken by Jesus, and he bore the full punishment in my place. And in return, I've received Jesus' innocent verdict. And God treats me as though I am righteous. You see, that righteousness is worth the loss of all things. In the eyes of most people, Paul lost his status and his pedigree. Here he is, you can imagine him, he's in prison, he's on death row. The statistics on his top trumps card suddenly seem far less impressive. But Paul says it's worth it. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Previously in this series, I've compared believing in Jesus with going bungee jumping. Yeah, I think the first time you go bungee jumping with someone, they they strap you to someone else so you learn how to do it. I never understood that. It's always seemed rather easy to me. You just have to jump off. So if you're strapped to someone and they decide to launch themselves off the platform, then you really don't have much choice. You're strapped to them. You're going with them. Their trajectory becomes your trajectory. So they're going to go plummeting down and you're going to go with them. And then, bing, they're going to go flying back up again. And so are you. Well, if we have faith in Christ, we are intimately united with him, strapped to him. Which means when Christ died, our sins died with him. 
and when Christ was raised, we have certainty that we will be raised also. I once read an article detailing the final words of people executed on death row in America and it was it was painful reading. Some of them were, were screaming out, maintaining their innocence. Others were effing and blinding about their lawyers and the people who'd messed them over. And many just th- said things like, roll on and, and let's get this over with. But one man said something extraordinary. Jim Johnson was his name. He'd been convicted of the premeditated murder of four police officers, two men and two women, with a semi-automatic, ri- semi-automatic rifle he shot dead Leslie Rourke, Charles Smith, Sandra Wilson and Pam Jones, all of whom had spouses and children back home. So on the morning of the, September the 9th, 2002, Jim Johnson died by lethal injection. And these were his final words. The news reports today will say Jim Johnson is dead. Those reports will be untrue. Today I meet the one who gave his life for my sins, the one who extended to me mercy. Today I shall meet Jesus, my Lord and Saviour, face to face. When the executioners have done their worst, God will have been shown to have done his best. Jim Johnson was united with Jesus. Jim Johnson's sins died with Jesus. And now Jim Johnson is alive with Jesus in heaven. You see, Jim knew that Jesus' righteousness is better than everything. Because that was all he had to cling on. He, he had no statistics on his top trump card. He had no righteousness of his own to speak of. And so he had to trust himself entirely to that righteous verdict given to him by God. Someone like him could have spent his final remaining years in anguish and fear. But as they injected the poison into his veins, he was able to die with joy because he knew where he was going. If this story offends you, and I imagine it might offend a number, it's probably because you still think you're saved by what you do. You can play spiritual top trumps with people like Jim Johnson all your life, and you can feel much better about yourself, but it won't save you, and it won't bring you any joy. So if we want unshakable joy in life, if you want an emotional anchor that remains firm even when you lose everything, Consider self-confidence worthless and consider Christ's righteousness priceless. Paul says, I want to know Christ. May I ask, do you want to know Christ? Do you want to know the power of his death and resurrection for you? Well, then today would be a good day to tear up your homemade certificate of righteousness. Tear up your spiritual top trump. And accept the one who died for you. Accept his righteousness in your place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his righteous life. And thank you that he is willing to offer his his place for us. We thank you for giving us your righteousness in Jesus' name. And I pray that we would desire to know Jesus and that that status would govern our emotions regardless of what happens in life and we ask that in Jesus name. Amen.